0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation on this Monday night. Why are some of the most popular loyalty programs in the country changing the way they work? And what does it mean for you? It will very much depend on just how much money you tend to spend. With Valentine's Day tomorrow, we look at the whole notion of eating alone in restaurants and speak with a New York photographer who spent decades documenting the act in a book called Dining Alone in the Company of Solitude. We look into the science of why the massive earthquake in Turkey proved so devastating and what lessons it can offer other seismically active areas, including here at home. But first, speculation continues to mount over three unidentified aerial objects shot down over Canada and the U.S. over the past few days. What are they? Who do they belong to? What were they doing in our airspace? The former director of operations at NORAD Command, a Canadian, joins us to explain. and so when that balloon flew over North America, we all kind of thought that was going to be it. You know, they shot it down and we thought, okay, well, that story's done for now. Here we are, what is it, you know, a week and a half later, and all weekend, all we were talking about was this, these unidentified flying aerial phenomenon, whatever we're calling them now, to avoid you uh, call <laughs> using the term UFO, which got an American general into trouble yesterday for, because people hear that term and then everyone starts to speculate, right? Um. What do you think they are? I mean, I can't tell. One was described, the one they shot down over Lake Huron yesterday on the Michigan side, but right near the Canadian border. They described it as octagonal uh, with strings and and something attached to it. We don't know what they are. We don't know what they're doing in our airspace. We do know that uh, for a long time, we didn't uh, calibrate, I think that's the right word, calibrate radar to find them because there's so much stuff out there that you know, we're built to look for threats like missiles, and speeding jets. We're not built to look for things that kind of float along like these things do. And all of a sudden we are, and here we are. Three in three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, things shot down over northern Alaska, over Yukon, and again yesterday over Lake Huron. You know what? One of the funny speculation things that come up has come up, of course, is that people are talking about these being actual UFOs. So much so that the White House spokesperson had to talk about it today. Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre
1: there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. Um, I'm not. (laughs) Would you tell us? I'm just, you know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm I'm just going to leave it there.
0: I mean, that was at the White House today. That's how much the speculation got around over the weekend, because, of course, nature uh, abhors a vacuum. And in this case, we don't really know what these three objects are. They haven't been recovered yet. Uh, So people are speculating wildly as people are wont to do. Uh, So let's talk a bit about what exactly has happened here. So on Friday, American fighter jets shot down something moving over the skies above Alaska. Then Saturday, they did the same over Yukon again, American fighter jets. And that's important. We'll talk about that in a second. And Sunday, again, another high-altitude object, or whatever we're calling them, was shot down over Lake Huron in Michigan near the Canadian border. That one described, again, as an unmanned octagonal structure with strings attached to it. I mean, was that a kite? Like, it's, it's you know, again, we're, we're lacking information here. Uh, back on this side of the border, the prime minister was on a scheduled visit to Yukon today, ironically, where he said the RCMP... And uh, the armed forces are searching a large area of central Yukon for the object. He described it as a serious situation that both our country and the U.S. are on top of. He said the fact that a U.S. fighter jet shot down that object on Saturday over Canadian soil is not a problem. It's proof NORAD actually works as it should. And it's no coincidence, he felt, that three such objects were spotted in rapid succession. It was uh,
2: very much based on the context and the situations of who was there, who had the capacity to do it before uh, we lost the object into darkness or into situations. Our focus was not on which side gets credit for what. Our focus was on running the operation smoothly and successfully. Obviously, there is some sort of pattern in there. The fact that we are seeing this in a significant degree over the past week uh, is a cause for interest and uh, close attention, uh, which is exactly what we're doing. We've employed sig- deployed significant resources here uh, to be able to recover the uh, the object.
0: Yeah, so we don't know what they are. I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. We don't know because we haven't recovered them, and we just don't know. At least no one's saying. Um Canadians in the U.S. so far have given no indication that they're related to that Chinese spy balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina on February 5th either. So it's all been open to speculation. Um, we do know that all three of the latest ones were traveling at such low altitude that they could pose a risk to civilian air traffic. So that was part of the issue here. So what exactly is going on? Well, few know NORAD as at its inner workings better than my next guest. He's retired Royal Canadian Air Force Major General Scott Clancy. He's the former Director of Operations at NORAD Command and former Deputy Commander of the Alaskan NORAD region. He is now with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and he joins me now from Coburg in Ontario. Major General Clancy,
3: thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess listeners are all just trying
0: to figure out what's going on here. The prime minister today uh, referred to, quote, some kind of pattern here. Are we watching some kind of pattern evolve out there?
3: I think so. I think that based upon my experience in NORAD and my 37 years, you know, either studying military affairs and being part of the military, you're seeing a pattern associated with the intelligence collection of adversaries of Canada and the United States.
0: And not necessarily just China here, I think a lot of us have thought China because of that initial, that first balloon that was taken down, but this could be broader than that.
3: It absolutely could. I think that both nations have asked to exercise caution pertaining to the origins of these last three objects that have been shot down by NORAD. And I think that's, that's prudent. Things like this can have diplomatic security and even economic repercussions that could affect the lives of canadians and americans and and i think that it is prudent for them to wait until they have the proof to understand exactly what that is but that doesn't change that it's a pattern and it doesn't change that it's nefarious activity of adversaries of our nation
0: when we look at what's happened over the last uh, week and a half or so um i mean clearly they've spotted perhaps they've spotted Uh, a gap in the system you've talked about this what is that gap i imagine those radars are just full of stuff and you have to filter it out
3: so you think about a radar system like any radar that applies the data into a scope that a human is looking at and as they look at that scope if you want all of the radar data then that human's going to have to interpret all of those things and that's a lot we used to Say down in NORAD, if you, you're looking at the whole world, but it, if you look at everything all at once, then you're actually looking at nothing, right? Because it, it's just too overwhelming. So when the predominant threat is cruise missiles and bombers that travel at hundreds of miles an hour, you use the filters on those radars to filter out all of that ground clutter, environmental bird, balloon, and other things that are traveling at low airspeeds speeds to try and focus in on those threats. And you lose some of those other things. Now, that in and of itself should not be indicative of, okay, well, then we just haven't been seeing these, because because we have. And, and it's not just NORAD's radars. So to be clear, I think there's something else that everybody needs to understand. And, that you know, before 9-11, we just used the exterior radars around the periphery of our nations, you know, up in Alaska and northern Canada to see the approach of of adversarial aircraft. But since 9-11, we've been integrating the radar feeds of, Navigation Canada, so NavCan and the FAA into the recognized air picture of NORAD, which means that, you know, there's a much more higher fidelity than just what the NORAD radars have been seeing. There is balloon and this type of object stuff that NORAD has seen in the past. So it's not a complete gap, but it is partial. And then uh, the last thing that I think your listeners might want to know and understand is that NORAD works hard to keep the systems that they have maximized. So that they're best prepared to counter that threat. But these radars, you know, they were installed in the 1980s. So this is the 1970s technology installed in 1980s. And, and although the radars themselves are, are, are still, you know, fairly good, you think of the data processing, the computer system that would support something like that, and the evolution from 1970s technology to that which we have in 2023. That's a significant advancement. And, and I think applying that data processing onto the back end of these radar systems is going to significantly change what we can see and what we interpret as threat.
0: So I suspect now we're just looking for other things that perhaps we weren't looking for as as diligently as before. Maybe diligent is the wrong word, but we weren't trying to spot these things. Now we are, thus, the sudden flurry of activity that we're seeing.
3: Well, like anything, you don't know something's a threat uh, (laughs) until it is. We didn't look at civilian airliners. As being a threat until the morning of 9 11, we wouldn't necessarily have looked at packages just hanging out on the side of roads as threats until, you know, thousands of our troops were killed with IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, so you know, you, you think about threat in a different term as as time evolves and you try to learn from history to evolve us. But so I don't think it's, I don't think it's about diligence. I mean, here's what I want to say about diligence. The NORAD Enterprise worked as it's supposed to with a very effective, coordinated chain of command that was enabled to give options to the national authorities of Canada and the United States while protecting their sovereignty and acting in a coherent fashion. And the only reason it was able to do so is that thousands of times, some of it under my direction, the NORAD Enterprise exercised exactly these types of scenarios to the full extent.
0: When we look at what's being done now, how would one go about using that 70s technology and then try to adapt it to spot these potential threats now that they may be considered as such?
3: So General Van Urk alluded to this already in his briefing over the weekend. I mean, he's adjusted some of those filters to make sure that they are not filtering out that data and they're they're specifically looking for this. I I think one of the things that we're seeing here is, is that they're detecting more, therefore they're reacting more. But I don't think it's just that. I I also think that, you know, a pattern so tight in this specific time frame indicates a concerted effort by our adversaries to garner information.
0: What is it that our adversaries would be looking for using these sort of low speed, seemingly relatively low tech? I mean, I don't mean low tech in, in, in in the common way, but perhaps low tech by your standards. What is it that they're searching for, do you think?
3: These types of objects are going to be able to be persistent over top of North America, where other systems are going to pass by very, very quickly. At the, at the same time, you're thinking about systems that can garner on radio waves, that can you know hear and sense things, cell phone towers, emissions, all the rest of those items, on top of cameras. And because of their persistence, they can also look at pattern of light. You're over top of a location for a significant amount of time, where you know it might be important to know... I don't know when the Americans swap out their crews and change shifts at their missile silos, or when our f eighteens uh, scramble in Cold Lake. I mean, all of these things could be things that they're attempting to garner on. And I say could be because we just don't know. Now, here's what I think that is illuminating. I never look at single intelligence gathering things on their own. You know, look at these not just about a pattern, but as a part of a system of systems that's attempting to garner information from our adversary. So imagine an adversary that floats objects or balloons over top of North America, but at the same time is using offensive cyber operations to hack into our networks and is sitting there waiting for, because they know when these balloons and objects are going to come over, waiting for us to detect them. And then once they know we do, they're watching our command and control systems, our nodes, these objects might be gar- gathering on cell phone towers. They have other elements that are listening. Our cell phones are all always listening to us. And, at, at which point in time, they get a good picture of how we respond, the capabilities to detect. Thereafter, might even get a good sense as to the political will and the political abilities demonstrated by both countries that might be illuminating for them if they wanted to advance something of a higher crisis. And I think first balloon was Chinese. OK, would that not be very informative to the Chinese as to how the government of the United States might respond to an incursion across the Taiwan Straits? And, and, and I don't want to be explosive with this, but but it's at least going to be informative to them.
0: Uh, Major General Scott Clancy, tell me a bit about what happens behind the scenes, because this is clearly something that you understand very well. But what is the process to identify something and then make the decision to shoot it down, as we've seen happen uh, several times now over the past week and a half?
3: standard phases in in any thought process the first thing that's going to happen is you have to garner information so from a norad point of view they would either be cued by intelligence or detect something via the systems that are feeding information so you know the easy one to understand is a radar detects a track okay we have a threat now we have to figure out what to do so in norad you have three regions uh, the Alaskan NORAD region, the Canadian NORAD region, which is all of Canada, and the continental NORAD region, which is the lower 48. The regions are semi-autonomous in this in that they will direct the immediate responses to threats that are in their regions. It's designed this way so that in a time of war, they can fight independently and NORAD and Colorado Springs can, can coordinate, but that we can degrade operations very quickly if, if we have to. So that region will actually launch aircraft to investigate. Uh, In the Alaskan NORAD region and the Canadian NORAD region, this could be fighter aircraft. This could be airborne early warning systems with their long-range radars. And the associated tankers to take those aircraft... So that they can get an identification. Now, that identification, you know, various forms of being able to identify uh, what something is. The whole point of that identification is to discriminate, to delineate between that which is threat, that which is just a benign object, that which is a civil aircraft, that which is a military. You know, this is. A complex categorization, but the idea here is to get after what it is. If in this instance, and, and if I hearken back to Minister Anand's comments at her press conference on Sunday, you know, that they were waiting until daylight because they wanted to get a visual identification on that object. I think that's prudent. That, you know, there, there's time that's found here. This isn't necessarily an immediate military threat, so let's take the time to be prudent and to do this safely. That allows you to discriminate or at least get information back from the pilots through the communication systems to figure out what that is. Now, all of this information would go to Colorado Springs. In Colorado Springs, we would use decision-making tools, both digital and voice, to be able to go through a series of categories and categorizations that allow us to describe what that threat looks like. And although classified, you know, you can imagine the kind of things that would delineate that out. You've got an aircraft and it's a civilian aircraft and looks like he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then he's being very compliant with your directions. Then, you know, that indicates a certain threat. But if you've got someone who looks like he's charging towards the Pentagon or the White House, and then then that that's something uh, completely different. Now, once that categorization is made, the decision makers of both countries are on conferences are in communications with Norad headquarters, and that characterization, along with the recommendations, well, options first, and then recommendation, is given to the engagement authority of whichever nation is you know that stuff is happening over. In this, in the instance of Sunday, it would have been the, you know Canada. Uh, in the instance of that stuff over the United States, it would have been American authorities that were th- those options were given to. Uh, So that's kind of what happens in the background to get to that point of engagement. Canada is vulnerable.
2: Vulnerable because this government has failed to counter foreign interference, failed to stop funding of Beijing's
0: military research, failed to upgrade NORAD's early warning system, and failed to acquire modern fighter jets. Over the past week, we have seen NORAD doing what it does best. Our two countries working together seamlessly to ensure continental security. We are continuing to monitor the situation. We are conducting recovery operations and will take whatever action is necessary. Yeah, we're talking about the three objects. What are we going to call them? Aerial objects. Unidentified aerial objects that were shot down Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, over North America. One of them over Canadian territory in Yukon on Saturday, another over northern Alaska Friday. And then yesterday, over Lake Huron on the Michigan side, but not far from the Canadian side, as mentioned, uh, Canadian uh, teams are going to be involved in the search, obviously for the uh, object that was shot down over Yukon, but also the one that was that hit the waters of Lake Huron. What it led to over the weekend, especially the one in in Yukon, was that it was an American fighter jet that shot it down, and this led to all kinds of hand wringing out there. But oh, Canada, we can't do, we can't protect ourselves. Listen, criticism of our Arctic defense is fair game. It is. But, you know, even Michael Chong, the Conservatives know how NORAD works. You don't need to be explained how NORAD works. You know, the, the scramble jets, the the one who has the best chance of getting there first at the right time takes the shot, right? That's how it works. So this isn't about Canada not having the right equipment, although it, there's an element of truth in there. Uh, but this is how NORAD works. In fact, if anything, it, it looks like it worked well over the weekend. Uh, We don't know what these objects are, by the way. We still don't. Uh, The Americans haven't told us. Our own government isn't telling us. Uh, The defense minister yesterday gave sort of the most vague answers that she's wont to do. Uh, Anita Anand. Like, we're not hearing much. We just don't know much. I suppose they'll be able to tell us when they actually know themselves. Uh, But the politicking of it was interesting because we should have been paying more attention to Arctic security. And this goes back a long time. Listen, the conservatives messed up the F-35 deal. We all know that. If we waited 10 years for, for these jets, it's because successive governments have gotten this file so terribly wrong. So it's interesting to hear them pointing the finger at each other. And they didn't do much for Arctic security either. Like For a long time, no government in this country has paid enough attention to what's going on defense-wise. They just haven't. You know, they haven't. So you can hear all the all the finger pointing and listen to the conservatives talk about what the liberals haven't, haven't done in their eight years. It's fair game. It is. That's what you do when you're the opposition. But if they look in the mirror, they realize they didn't do much either. They really didn't. Back when Harper was in power, they didn't do much. In fact, if anything, they cut the military. So, you know, what we need is, is a government that will actually do something now. And we know that we're getting the F-35s, which is good. NORAD is being upgraded, which is good as well. Um, but it's been interesting to watch the finger pointing over all of this. Because politics always becomes involved, obviously, in in the States, the politics are already heavily involved in all this. Uh, With us over the last half hour, and this for the next 15 minutes, is retired Royal Canadian Air Force Major General Scott Clancy. He's former director of operations at NORAD Command, meaning he was in charge of the whole kit and caboodle. And he's former deputy commander of the Alaskan NORAD region. He's now with the Canadian Global Affairs uh, Institute. Uh, Thanks again, uh, Major General Clancy. So what do you make of all this politics?
3: Yeah, so I I think this is just people not understanding the organization of NORAD and the decision making pertaining to that object or objects writ large. Okay, first, tactical decisions on which airframe or which aircraft or whose aircraft is in the best position to take a shot or to do something, uh, these are usually at the discretion of the tactical commanders, read the region commanders and below norad agreement and the coordination that occurs means that we can use each other's aircraft and assets on either side of the border it might be an aircraft scrambled out of our east coast that is in a better position to respond even though uh, that you know the the threat might be in american airspace down south it could be a fighter jets out of cold lake that respond to the southern end uh, or out of Comox that respond to the southern end of Alaska. In this instance, the CDS, Wayne Air on his uh, part of the press conference on Sunday, made it clear that the direction was the first aircraft with the best shot should take, you know, has the go ahead. And that President Biden prior to that, had issued the authority for an American jet to be able to be used in that instance. Now, those are two different authorities. That's not Joe Biden saying that he authorizes that engagement. He's just authorizing the use of the American jet. If if Joe Biden hadn't decided to do that, he said, you know, I don't think it's in the best interest of Americans to do that. And then Canada would just go ahead and use our jet to, in that. State. So the, in that instance, those tactical decisions that are based upon geography, tactics, aircraft, all the rest of those tactical things that you pay military people to know the best about is made by them. And the decision for the engagement rests with the sovereign authorities of whichever nation that object is in
0: what gaps do you think this is pointed out i mean there's been a lot already uh, politically about uh, about northern defense we've been talking about arctic defense for a while now given russia's invasion of ukraine uh where do you think the improvements need to be made here you mentioned earlier norad relies on technology that is as old as many of us right so uh what needs to be done do you think to to uh to strengthen that 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 whole system
3: so the united states dod is getting after uh, their program of continental defense and uh, homeland defense and what what that means to them and a myriad of systems many of which you know uh, are cross border compatible and canada the norad modernization that was announced by the minister of national defense this last summer is exactly what uh, norad needs to push forward I, You know, the systems that are in that, the over the horizon radars, the technology is advanced enough so that you can push the knowledge deep into the Arctic, deep across our coasts to see things much earlier before they arrive in North America. The whole point with that is to give time to decision makers to be able to to, to have options to make decisions. The purchase of the F-35 by Canada, essential at being able to counter the cruise missile threats and other air threats in our airspace, the provision of a Canadian tanker that allows us to project force around our enormous country and into the Arctic is essential, as is the infrastructure that's already in the Arctic that allows forward operation bases, you know, in places like Inuvik and uh, Iqaluit. These are essential for us to be able to operate.
0: Is this been a bit of a wake-up call? I'm sure you sounded this alarm when you were in your positions, many positions. Is this a bit of a wake-up call for all of us, even though the threat itself is so far sort of undetermined?
3: I, I think there's two things that I always would like Canadians to hearken to on, you know, in, in this last week and a week and a bit period first one is you should be very proud of the well the royal canadian air force the canadian Air forces but especially the canadians and americans that are working together jointly in the norad agreement how canada has been side by side with the americans in this and in a the coherent and effective way in which they are able to protect our sovereignty now that that doesn't diminish the need to modernize norad or all the rest of those things but you know you can buy equipment quickly, but you don't establish partnerships like that overnight. Those relationships, that trust, that credibility that is established over the intervening 64 years that NORAD has been around. That's the first thing I want Canadians you know, to know. But the second thing I want Canadians to know is that just don't be naive. I do think that Canadians are naive pertaining to our national security. We get lulled into a sense of complacency because of our large neighbor to the south. But we have a role here. And our role is to protect our sovereignty as a good partner. To contribute to that, you need to have an effective force. Governments will come and go. And they will use the political pieces of the day. All of them, both sides of, or all sides uh, of the aisle, will use whatever they have to, and, and then things compete for those dollars. But security, without that security, none of the rest of this nation is, is going to uh, survive. So, so don't be naive about our security because you're taking it for granted.
0: I guess the, the big question is now is what were these things? I guess we, we have to find them to figure out.
3: Yeah, so ex- exactly. the Funny enough, the Recovery operations that are ongoing in the Yukon and in Alaska, not the same as the one in, in Huron, but between Yukon and Alaska, very, very similar. Helicopters, uh, CP-140s or P-8 Orions, a Canadian, uh, American, they're going into harsh conditions trying to find a needle in a haystack of something that was shot down on extremely high altitude and spread over probably kilometers of distance in some of the most inhospitable terrain on the planet. Yeah, it's a, uh, there's something of a reality TV show to be made there.
0: Yeah, do, what do you think we might find out when we find them? Were these uh, were these Russian? Do you think?
3: That's that's where that line has to. Start. I'm not going to speculate on the origins. I will right. I will state that you know my opinion is this is technology or these objects are are part of you know a complex intelligence gathering plan. Where they're from? That's going to be an interesting question that we all want answered.
0: We're waiting for those answers. Uh, Major General Scott Clancy, thank you so much.
3: You're very welcome.
4: I'm
0: not sure about you, but I must have dozens of cards, you know, things I picked up over the years from different restaurants, takeaway stuff, you know, buy nine, get one free sort of things. And you always, I just forget to use them. I don't like carrying a ton of them around in my wallet. But I suppose there's a few programs that, uh, that at least in my family, we tend to Adhere to London Drugs has a good one. Shoppers, I guess, you know, um, there are uh, grocery store ones that we do, but you know, not not all the time. I don't think I would go to my way just for loyalty points. But some people are really, really skilled at making sure that they take full advantage of their loyalty cards. Uh, one of those places, no doubt, that people use their loyalty points are places such as Starbucks or Tim Hortons, places you go get your morning coffee. Well, it turns out that today Starbucks revamped their loyalty program. And a little later this month, Tim Hortons will be doing exactly the same thing. Um, They're making, essentially what they're doing is they're making it more contingent on how much money you spend, And ultimately you'll have to spend more money to get free stuff. So what do you need to know? What do you need to know about loyalty programs in general? But what do you need to know about the changes coming to these ones? Specifically, I mean, these are two really popular ones, as far as I can tell. Tim Hortons, in particular. Well, joining me now is Patrick Astoika. He is the founder and CEO of RewardsCanada.ca. Thanks for your time tonight, Patrick. Thanks for having me on your show, Ben. So, so I, you know, people really care about, they really care about this stuff, right? So we have a big one today in Starbucks, but I guess an even bigger one for Canadians coming up with uh, Tim Hortons. Lots of changes in the coffee business this month. What's going on? Oh, yeah, you know, it was crazy. It just all
2: of a sudden came out last December, this news within a couple of days of each other. Tim's, you know, saying they're changing their program coming February and then Starbucks saying they're changing their program coming February. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden this was slammed on us. There's multiple factors in play. We saw. McDonald's changed their program, you know, sooner than that, but I think become very competitive compared to the others. So maybe you know, which is surprising, it kind of surprised me that Starbucks and Tim's were making these changes. But I think it's just the whole market as a whole. You know, I, I think the companies are saying, "What, well, where can we squeeze a few more dollars out of out of you know our customers?" And that's in their loyalty
0: programs. What's surprising here is that with inflation high and Competition always high. You'd think these companies would be trying to go after each other for those customers when they're looking to save a dime, not try to squeeze them a bit more. Yeah, exactly. You know, but you know, I think maybe there's a a bigger thing at play here. There, here's the thing: in
2: the loyalty industry, when program changes happen, customers aren't happy. Of course, they they get really mad. You hear about it on social media, on forums, and everything for a couple months, and then it dies down. And everything seems to go back to normal. Is there much defection rate to another company or program? Probably not enough where the companies need to keep the program the way it is. You know, so it's it's kind of like they weather the storm, they make these changes. What may make some people happier is that we may see more offers come from these programs. You know, that that's what a lot of them do seem to like to do. is like, okay, well, we're going to boost the rates, but let's make it, I wouldn't say easier, but let's give them more opportunity to earn more points by coming into store. We may see more offers on your Tim Horns app. You may see more... Double stars days at Starbucks, those type of things. I mean, I'm just guessing here. I'm hoping that's what happens, but that's what we've seen happen in the past with these programs.
0: Now, reading through your blog on this, it seems like it's not all bad news, right? A lot of it boils down to just how much money you spend as opposed to how often you go, right? Which is kind of weird when it comes to loyalty, to be honest.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's definitely the case with Tim Hortons. With Starbucks, unfortunately, unless you're redeeming points for take-at-home coffee, which I don't know that many people who do that, but if you are somebody who takes home their prepackaged coffees you're actually going to be better off with their like changes the to their program. Need, yeah, like the, the beans beads. or the, yeah, ground, yeah. the ground coffee in a oh, bag, oh, yeah, oh. or the beans or whatever. Those have actually come down in, in point-level price. So so it's actually it, – that's better. It's a 25% decrease from 400 to 300 stars. But everything else is increased, you know, 100% increase on your hot coffee or brewed beverage, you know, 50 points to 100 points. But, yeah, with Tim Hortons, the change there is they've moved into, um, you know, instead of a per-visit, earn rate you now have a per dollar earn rate um, so of course that rewards people who spend more and we we did the numbers and if you're somebody who spends less than five dollars and 72 cents per visit the new program that launches on February 21st is worse for you. And this is based on earning a free coffee, by the way. Um, but if you spend more than 572 per visit, the new program that starts in just over a week is actually better for you. You know, Tim's went to the root of we're gonna try and encourage people to spend a little bit more. You know, maybe they'll they'll buy two coffees and a donut instead of just two coffees or something like that. You know, they're they're gonna really try and push just to squeeze a little bit of extra money out of people. And we're kind of seeing the same thing with the grocery stores and and their loyalty programs. You know, we're now seeing instead of buying one or two items to get get bonus points, they're asking you to buy five, ten items. They're just trying to push people to spend more.
0: In this case, you did some some crunching of the numbers in terms of all the loyalty programs. You were a bit surprised at Tim Horton's one, only because it didn't seem to really reflect... McDonald's, who one would assume is their main competition here, or Starbucks. Like in some ways, Tim Hortons has come out with what could be called objectively the least attractive changes to their program. Yeah. Exactly, and and there, I'll I'll put a little asterisk on that
2: because that, that was I wrote that before the Starbucks changes came out, so it was a little bit of a change. But yeah, McDonald's, yeah. you only have to spend twenty dollars to get a free coffee. The new Tim Hortons program, you now have to spend forty dollars. You have to spend twice as much as McDonald's. So if if you're really about that morning coffee and you you know you're fifty fifty between McDonald's and Tim's and they're both on your drive to work, you know I I may see you know we may see a few people switching over to McDonald's because they're going to be getting two free coffees for every one at Tim Hortons. And, you know, when Tim Hortons came out with their changes, Starbucks only required $25 for a free coffee. But then a week later, Starbucks came out with their changes and doubled. So, now it's $50. All right. So, okay. So. <laughs> so, there's there's some shifting. Yeah. It, it really all happened pretty quickly here. But, yeah. So, McDonald's is your cheapest place in terms of getting a free coffee, $20. Tim Hortons is $40. Starbucks is $50. And now, Starbucks, if you don't use their scan and pay, so that's where you load funds to your Starbucks card, if you don't right. load funds to your card, and pay, but you just scan your card and then pay with something separate, you actually have to spend $100 now because you only earn one star per dollar instead of two.
0: We have an idea just how important these loyalty programs are because it's hard to tell. I mean, when I go to tim hortons or i go to starbucks or i go to mcdonald's you see some people using their loyalty cards but not everybody right like I, I don't i just it's always hard to figure out how much of a draw these programs are but i often see sort of senior citizens for instance at tim hortons collecting their free coffee like they've planned it out and you think it would be a bit of a shame to force them to have to spend more money oh absolutely yeah you know and that, and that's
2: Exactly the person they're probably going and only buying one coffee or maybe one coffee, one donut yes. that costs three dollars. And you like said that break-even point was five, almost six dollars. You know, to where the new program is better for you. So they're going to be spending more before they get their free coffee, and that definitely affects, you know, their bottom line uh, as a, in terms of a consumer. You know, and and some people actually do rely on their loyalty programs for that little bit of extra boost to their finances.
0: Just how important are the loyalty programs, though, for the bottom line? I mean, clearly they feel like they, every company feels like they can toy with them in a way that they might not toy with other things, or maybe they do. But how important are the loyalty programs, do you think, overall, to these sorts of businesses?
2: Yeah, I was kind of surprised when, when actually Tim's launched the program many years ago. You know, McDonald's just had their stickers on the cup. And, but obviously I think they are big enough for these type of retailers. That They're keeping them around. I mean, McDonald's actually expanded a program just over a year and a half ago to, to be beyond just coffee and fries. It's it's almost anything now there. So that that kind of surprised me. I thought these type of retailers where the loyalty programs wouldn't actually seem to play a really big part. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have seen those changes from McDonald's and Tim Hortons, I think, going to that uh, dollar spending level. Mm-hmm. Is in a way trying to compete with McDonald's, even though you're going to be spending twice as much for that free coffee. I think they're they're following McDonald's
0: model. Patrick, when one looks at just the whole landscape now of loyalty programs, it feels like they have started to shift. You mentioned, I think, in that blog that it did airlines did so, or airline point cards did so, ages ago. Uh, but what's going on behind the scenes here? What how, how is this changing for consumers? Because I'm not sure we always can pay attention to how all our loyalty programs are shifting, even when we get those big letters explaining how they're shifting.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, there's... And and it's the same with the... You know, we get the letters, the emails. I mean, Starbucks email at, at the end of December was so vague that no... You know, I think almost nobody saw that these changes were coming. You know, I didn't. I mean, my my Starbucks email was actually in my... uh Went into my spam. Right. And it was one of our readers who, who notified me saying, you know, hey, did you see the changes come to Starbucks? So I go in my spam and see. It's like, hold on. They're just saying they're updating their terms. There's nothing saying that they're actually change, changing the loyalty program. So they they, they were kind of very... Um, vague about it. And now, just a week ago, they came out with a better email about it, but only a week before to let people know. And that seemed like kind of a play in that they didn't want people rushing to spend all their stars. At right. the lo- at the lower levels, you <laughs> know, course. but it just seems to be expanding to more and more markets because we've seen loyalty programs expand to more and more markets. You know, 20 years ago, coffee shops they had their you had your little card buy ten get one free. You know, they, right. it was a simple loyalty program, and the more intricate ones where you're like air miles, Aeroplan, those type of things. And so people have kind of followed suit of those programs because they were kind of market leaders. So yeah, we've kind of seen seen this kind of shift in the way uh, programs, I guess, you know, are really. I, I think you use the proper terminology toying with their members right <laughs> they're trying to figure out the right way it's like um to keep their members without making them too mad and and we've seen it we, we do see it you know we've seen changes from air miles aeroplane aeroplan over the years a big uproar happens but then six months 12 months later everything's hunky-dory <laughs> yeah exactly everybody's back to using their program because honestly there are in some in some ways there isn't a lot of selection I mean there's a lot of credit card reward programs that compete against each other so there's a lot of competition there but when you think about the coffee shops and all that there's there's not a lot and it, and it's more uh, i think the loyalty programs there are kind of a secondary thing it's more about convenience it's like you know what I'm a, am i going to go to tim's or starbucks well whatever's closer to me that type of thing and that, that even happens with like grocery stores as well a lot of time it comes out to convenience like, am I am i going to drive five minutes to sobeys or 15 minutes to a superstore or something like that yeah. you know so so that, that's where those programs come in it, it's kind of just a a secondary boost to people who go to those stores because they're they're, they're going more based on their habits.
0: So Patrick, uh, in February of 2023, what as a consumer should we really be looking out for these days when it comes to loyalty programs? Uh, maybe not sort of the credit card ones and the big ones. I mean, those I think you'd really need to study. But just what should we be looking out for as consumers when it comes to these trends?
2: Don't go out of your way to, you know, really work a program. You know, like I said, like I said if you're if if you're used to shopping somewhere five minutes away, don't go fifteen minutes away to if the, if a store has a bonus point on something. I mean, some people will do the maths, like, well, you know, what? I'm spending an extra dollar of gas, but I'm getting three dollars in rewards. I'm going to go, you know, those type yeah. of things. But for most people, it's it's literally, you know, make sure you do check the app, the emails, add add the offers, the bonus offers, because those do make the rewards come faster. So so do do little things like that. And like you said, yeah, with the bigger programs, it does take a bit more research, even though, uh, you know, we, we do our best to try and educate people. But a lot of people just jump right in, you know, without figuring out what's the best credit card for them or best airline program, those type of things. But I think when it comes to these kind of everyday programs for your groceries, for your coffee, those type of things, there's no harm in joining them all because you're kind of, you know, it, it, again, it comes down to you might be driving home from work. It's like, hey, you know what, I'm going to stop at McDonald's and get myself a a Big Mac meal and Happy Meals for the kids. It's like, well, yeah, you know what? I I have the My McDonald's app. I'm going to scan and use those points. But one thing about these smaller programs to note, though, is because their rewards are worth under $50 typically, like when you redeem. They're allowed to have expiry on those points much quicker than other programs do. Right. So like McDonald's, I believe, I think most of these programs are around six months. Uh, I'd have to double check, but I think they're around six months that your um, points or your stars might, might expire. So I know, I know McDonald's does a really good job in the app. It says you're, you have points expiring this month and you can see how many. So then you can be aware to redeem those points. And yeah, sure. Maybe you've been saving up to get the, the biggest reward they have. It's like, well, you know what? Where you would rather use those points on something than lose them, so so use them up when you can, and that's probably the key point about these smaller programs because there were laws put in place in Ontario and Quebec about expiring points and miles, but for programs where the value of those rewards were below fifty dollars, they can still do the expiry rules, and that and those are just kind of Canada wide because why have two rules for Ontario and Alberta type thing?
0: Right. Well, Patrick Stojka, thank you so much for your uh, for your time and your information on this. Great. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. In fact, it's already Valentine's Day officially uh, in the Eastern time zone, so Google already has its doodle up. It's quite quite nice, actually, go have a look at it. Uh, the Google doodles are always pretty decent, aren't they? Of course, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. I don't know what, what you have planned. I mean, there's been a lot of cutting back this year. I get the sense people are sort of looking at the day and thinking maybe this is the year to not go to to Haywire if you ever do. Let me know. one 9898 is our text line. one 9898 Now, you may see, think that this topic seems a little anti-Valentine, but it's not. It's not. Part of the issue is we were supposed to play this on Friday, but then John Tory quit, sort of. So we did not So we held it for tonight. And it's supposed to be inspirational because it is inspirational. I found it was. It's all about dining alone, going to a restaurant by yourself. Maybe not even a restaurant, maybe a cafe, but specifically that whole notion of going to a diner, having a meal by yourself in what would be called an eating establishment, right? Where you get a tab. Um, And how, not taboo, but how uncomfortable some people still are doing that about sitting by yourself. Now, part of it is financial and that's totally understandable. Why would you spend money on a meal that you could make yourself at home to go sit in a restaurant by yourself um, and then spend that money. I mean, sometimes it can feel like a bit of a waste, right? Let's be frank. Or unless you're like my next guest and you happen to live in New York City and there's restaurants absolutely everywhere of every price point and there's a whole culture built around people eating out. So in some ways, it's a little bit easier than say if you live in a smaller place where your options are more limited. But there is kind of a stigma about eating alone, right? About eating alone at a restaurant. As I was mentioning earlier, over the years, I've had to eat alone a lot because of the work I, I used to do, which involved being on the road a lot. So you just eat when you can. And that, that meant running around to finding the nearest restaurant, sitting down, ordering whatever you could, eating and going back to work. That's what you did. Um, I would spend a lot of time reading, right? That's what you do when you eat alone. You read, you, you study your story, you, you catch up on emails, like all that stuff. I mean, the eating is sort of incidental. But when I was young, I used to walk past this restaurant all the time on St. Catherine, which is the main shopping street in Montreal. And there was this famous uh, woman who used to sit by herself every night in the same table, or almost every night, at least I used to see her all the time, at this restaurant, French restaurant called Le Paris on St. Catherine. Every night, if you'd walk by, you would often see the same woman sitting by herself, having dinner, dressed to the nines, looked great, older, um, having her meal. And she became this sort of – this fixture that you would see all the time. And I always wondered what her story was. It turns out we all do that when we see people dining by themselves. There's this sort of idea that we're kind of – we sort of feel bad for them at the same time. We feel proud of them. We envy them. We create stories around them. There's a whole dynamic about eating alone. It was captured in many ways over many decades by New York photographer, Nancy Schurl. Uh, she has shot solo diners, photographed solo diners in fancy eateries, burger joints, even makeshift tents during the pandemic. And her images say a lot about a bunch of stuff, right? They say a lot about social behavior, about attitudes in public spaces, about what it's like to sit at a table by yourself and enjoy a meal. And Nancy Shurel, uh, talks to me about her book. It's called Dining Alone in the Company of Solitude. It was published by Daylight Books back in June of 2022. And Nancy joins me from New York City. Nancy, thank you.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben.
0: Tell me a bit about the inspiration for this, because as you know, it it is, there is still a stigma for whatever reason around people eating by themselves in restaurants. Uh, What did you set out? What story did you set out to tell with these photos?
1: It was, it was actually a very deeply personal project. My point of view is really that people who dine alone are often very strong and independent, at, and it takes courage to take oneself out alone and to be able to confront themselves. So that's my point of view. That doesn't dismiss the fact that I'm in agreement with you about the stigma. I will. I would just say, I guess, that when I, if I walk into a restaurant and ask, you know, for a table, and it's just for me, and if I'm seated at a table in the back for one that is facing, you know, a dark wall or a corner, I will turn around and say, could I sit at the sunny table over there? So that's how I sort of get get past the stigma right. uh, aspect of it all.
0: So, so even when you walk into a restaurant now, you feel like oftentimes if you're by yourself, you're going to get a table that isn't as nice as if you were with somebody else.
1: Not often, but it, it's part of the picture. Yes, it can be. It's part of the circumstances. It does happen.
0: And you mentioned that this was deeply personal for you. How so?
1: It's personal to me because my dear late mother lost her husband, my dad, when I was just a senior in high school. When I went off to college, I just uh, was very concerned about her now being now being alone. Once I witnessed that she was carrying on with her friendships, forging new relationships, and uh, so on and so forth, her path was just basically always forward. Once I saw that, it just really struck me. And so she became an inspiration for me. And I guess years later, when I graduated, I returned to New York, And I happened to live in Greenwich Village, which is surrounded by some of the most charming coffee shops, cafes, restaurants, and and what have you. And, you know, I was pursuing my freelance work, but I would take myself out um, to get a salad or to get a coffee in one of the cafes. And I would write and think. And uh, one day it just dawned on me that this is, I'm a photographer, this would be a great photo series. And so it began. It's
0: interesting that you put it that way because what I've always found so interesting about eating alone is that it does give you more time to think because you're not having a conversation with someone else; you're thinking, and yes. great and great ideas do often pop into your head when you're all by yourself, even at a restaurant.
1: I totally agree. Yes, you know, it, I consider it uh, to be sort of like it can be private time. Good things can happen during that time, and it's um, I think it's it's really Part of the picture, it's, it's like I think of solitude and dining alone in public as being a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you know, I think that one can enjoy oneself. It's it's solace and joy. And on the other end of the spectrum, it can be, you know, loneliness. And it can even spike into feeling isolated, you know, the more painful experiences such as that many people, I believe, experienced during the pandemic,
0: right. it's 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 what I bought the other thing that's interesting about people eating alone is that others, when you watch them, you tend to write stories for them. I mean, you can kind of sort of see people eating on their own and and try to imagine how they got there. And I guess yeah. that's part of what this is, too, right? we We are telling the stories of those they're an endless source of fascination, I guess, which is interesting. Yes.
1: Yes. Well, I totally appreciate that you said that, Ben, because I actually write about that in my book. But I always intrigued by what you just said, because when we are uh, dining alone in a restaurant, we are both observers and we're also observed. So um, similarly, you know, I think that when people would look at the pictures in my book, um, they would give me all sorts of stories. And I would sort of laugh and say, don't know, you know, we we don't really know what people are experiencing. Many of us project our own emotions uh, and experiences onto others. And that's how we uh, how we create the stories that we create.
0: Uh, Nancy, your photos cover a wide time period from the 80s all the way up until now. Did you notice dining alone had changed over that time at all? Did you did you notice differences? I mean, I, I could think of the technology, of course, uh, but anything else as well?
1: Yeah, I think that um, fashions changed. I think that smoking laws uh, were put into, a, into effect. And, you know, certainly in the 1980s, I remember photographing and, and some of those portraits are included in my book. A couple of smokers, ashtrays were often seen on the um, tables or the coffee shop booths. So fashion, smoking, certainly technology. And then I would say that even during the pandemic, things the whole circumstance of solitude changed drastically. And I think maybe the reason for that is, of course, because we were all uh, dealing with this Lethal lethal uh, COVID nineteen virus and we were terrified of it. In addition to that, we were all really experiencing the um, extreme isolation that we had been experiencing.
0: And right. how we, did that uh, how did that change? I mean, how did, you you took pictures during the pandemic? I mean, th- at that point, people were almost forced to be alone, right? So I think we saw solitude through a different lens during the pandemic.
1: Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the key word is forced. The whole situation was really forced upon all of us. And that, all of us, is is really worldwide. Uh, But I know that in the cities, certainly I can speak for New York City, you know, even the, the way that restaurants, though they were trying to not only stay in business, but that they were also trying to provide a platform to continue dining out and um, having that social outlet, and I think that uh, because everyone was so concerned about the germ factor, you know, the uh, constructs were they were they were very isolating. You know, they, they initially uh, appeared to be these wooden shacks, you know, built out into the into the roadways in, in New York right. City.
0: Eight. It did change. It did change. What, what, tell me a bit about, about technology, though, because I do notice that um, it seems to me that people are more comfortable now eating by themselves because of the whole advent of the phone. You know, it used to be that, oh, I don't have a book or I better find a newspaper. But now your phone is pretty much with you the whole time. So if you sit down and have a quick bite to eat, you sort of have your world at your fingertips. And that changes the idea of of solitude, I would say, more than eating by yourself.
1: Yes, I I would agree with that. I think that of course, you have to have the Wi Fi. But I would I would agree with you. And uh, I don't I don't really see it as being that much different from the pre digital era, though, or the pre cell phone and iPad era, only because I think people could really get lost in the characters of a book, or, you know, what they were reading in the newspaper, just as well as um, how they appear to be getting lost or becoming fully immersed by their uh, digital device
0: what what do you tell people out there listening tonight who are like oh, I don't like dining alone what would you tell them what would you advise them
1: oh I would just say really how about try it <laughs> just try it you might you might actually enjoy it and I would also respect them um, if they if they told me that they just didn't feel comfortable I understand it I really do because I think that, you know, what feels good for one person absolutely will not feel comfortable for another. And yeah. uh, the stigmas are, are are still out there. We do live in a couples-oriented um, society. And so...
0: But I, I guess, yeah, we should we shouldn't feel bad for people eating by themselves, though, right? Is that perhaps what you were getting at, too? Like, we should look at them in a different way.
1: I think so. That's just, you know, of course, we can't, as a photographer, I can't, and nor did I ever expect to orchestrate how my viewers would see these people. And I know uh, the portraits, I should say, in my book. And I know that some people looked at them and said, Oh, it's just a bunch of lone diners. But actually, most of the portraits in my book, I don't think they look sad. I think they're looking upward and outward and forward. And I think they're engaged with their activities or with people watching and you know, I just uh, I see it as, as being very different. But people, like I said, people will really proje- often project their own feelings and um, experiences onto what they're looking at. Those that they're looking at. So that's just the given.
0: Well, Nancy Sheryl, uh, what a fascinating project! Thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's, uh, let's head to Syria and Turkey now because they're still in the process of rescuing people, which is phenomenal considering how cold it is, how destructive it's been, uh, and just how devastating that earthquake was 7.8 magnitude shallow, less than 18 kilometers, I think. So the death toll has risen above 35,000. Now it's become one of the deadliest, most powerful earthquakes or certainly of the last uh, 50 years or so, um, It destroyed so many homes. I mean, what this has really revealed uh, above anything is just how fragile the infrastructure was in parts of Turkey and certainly in Syria, despite the fact that people know that it's in a quake zone. They've tried to fix this since another devastating earthquake back in 1999, and it's sort of the same area. Uh, Again, though, there continue to to be survivors pulled from the rubble of those buildings. Time, unfortunately, though, for miracles is quickly running out.
1: Rescuers in Turkey on Monday pulling several children alive from collapsed buildings. This, a week after the country's worst earthquake in modern history killed over 37,000 people and injured many more. On the ground, there's also growing frustration with the response to the crisis. Residents and first responders puzzled by the lack of water, food, medicine, body bags and cranes in the disaster zone, leaving hundreds of thousands of people to fend for themselves in the middle of winter. In de la Quatera, ABC News. At the foreign desk,
0: yeah, lots of criticism of the re- the recovery effort at this point uh, and the rescue effort, mainly, uh, particularly on the Syrian side. Of course, uh, that area of northwestern Syria has already been uh, battered by a civil war for more than a decade now. That is rebel-controlled territory, so there's all those logistics as well. Um, but why was that earthquake so devastating? Why was it so powerful? What can it teach? the rest of us who live in seismically active areas such as us here in BC. Uh, to help us with that is John Cassidy. He's an earthquake seismologist with Natural Resources Canada, and he joins me now. John, thanks. Welcome back.
4: Oh, yeah, I'm glad. Happy to, happy to be here. Thank you, Ben.
0: This was such a – I mean, we know that area is earthquake-prone. There have been big ones there in the past. But what about this one uh, was so devastating? I mean, it really has caused unimaginable damage.
4: Yes, it, it it's um... – uh, it is uh, one one of the worst earthquakes uh, around the world in terms of impact um, in more than a decade. This was, was a huge, huge event. What has made it so, so devastating is uh, a combination of things. It's the size of the earthquake at a, a 7.8. That's a huge earthquake. Um, but it was also in a, it was shallow, as you mentioned, but it was in a densely populated region. That's really the key thing. A large earthquake um, in the middle of the ocean or or a remote region um, is not going to cause a lot of a lot of damage. But this one was shallow. It was a very large, 300 kilometer long fault that ruptured uh, in a very densely populated region. So it's it's that really that terrible combination.
0: The, the location of it specifically, right? Because we know that there, there have been past earthquakes in Turkey. Even when I was there, it was talked about, right, that they were trying to upgrade uh, building codes and so on. But a lot of the buildings there are older than that. So you have this this powerful earthquake right in the middle of a densely populated area where buildings simply cl- crumbled, right? I mean, we've seen the images of them. It, it's it's they they yeah. drop like drop like toy houses.
4: Absolutely, it, 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 it's really hard to watch some of those um, the, the videos and the footage of that. Um, a lot of old buildings um, and structures that uh, just really couldn't withstand the shaking that this earthquake produced. Strong shaking um, that would have lasted for a couple of minutes. So not not like the little earthquakes that we feel every now and then here in, in Victoria, Vancouver, where the where they're shaking for a few seconds this was strong shaking for a few minutes over a huge area, 300 kilometer long fault zone. So um, yeah, yeah, really. You
0: know, what was, what was, what was happening under their feet? Because we've seen some of the images. I mean, we've seen like train tracks bent into S curves, roads bent, buildings stepping onto cars. Like they had the building foundation, of the building literally moved up and down onto things. I, I don't recall. I mean, I haven't, spent much time looking at it, but I just don't recall having seen a lot of images like that over the years when it came to uh, these quakes. What was going on to cause that amount of shaking and damage?
4: Yeah, when, when you get to these uh, to the, these really strong events, the shaking can actually be stronger than, than, than gravity. And so what that means is people can be tossed in the air, furniture, appliances, cars uh, can all be lifted off the ground. And, and tossed around. So it, really, it's incredibly strong shaking. It's the kind of shaking that we don't see very often, um, but it does happen for these large earthquakes, and it's um, uh, incredibly powerful over a very large area. We've seen um, you know, we've seen earthquakes of that magnitude. They're, they're rare events. So that's that's something that's important. Even in in, in that part of Turkey, um, these are rare events. But we've also seen such rare events here in Canada along the west coast. Uh, back in 1949, a magnitude 8.1 earthquake. Um, in 2012, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake off of Haida Gwaii. And back in the year 1700, a magnitude 9 earthquake off of uh, Vancouver Island, Washington, and Oregon. So we, we've seen we've seen that here before, um, but these are really rare events that. Uh, you know, are often forgotten about because because it may be centuries between such earthquakes.
0: Right. Tell me a bit about the the plates, the Anatolian, the North Anatolian plate, and the East Anatolian. Sorry, the North Anatolian fault and the East Anatolian fault, because that that's that's the issue here, right? That's that's what ruptured. That's probably that, the wrong. That part. is,
4: uh, yeah, that is exactly the issue. That's what causes the the these large earthquakes in Turkey is the the plate motions. We have, um, we have quite a few things happening in that area. It's really complicated. We have Africa drifting slowly to the north and colliding with Europe and Asia um, in the vicinity of the, of the southern Mediterranean. So that's one element of this. We have the Arabian Peninsula that is rotating, uh, also rotating into the area. Um, and so Turkey, with two major fault systems, one in the north, the North Anatolian Fault, uh, fault system, and then in the south, the East Anatolian fault system. Uh, that's where the motion I- is released. So Turkey is, is sort of caught in a um, in a vice. It's being squeezed in a vice grip. It's being squeezed and it's moving. It's, it's being squeezed out almost like a, a tube of toothpaste. And the movement takes place mainly on these two fault systems, the one in the north and then the one that um, ruptured most recently, the East Anatolian Fault. So these are what we call strike slip. It's a horizontal slipping uh, of the Anatolian plate. Um, the, the movement is is not that fast. It's about one centimeter a year um, on that southern fault system. So it's uh, it, you know it's roughly the speed that your fingernails grow. So it, it isn't very fast, but over a lifetime, it represents a meter of movement. And uh, these recent earthquakes, uh, the movement that took place along that fault zone was in the order of three to four meters. So it's several several centuries of energy that has been uh, been stored along that fault system.
0: John Cassidy is an earthquake seismologist with Natural Resources Canada. He joins us this half hour. We're talking about uh, the devastating earthquake in Syria. And Turkey, well, the earthquakes were in Turkey, but the devastation felt uh, over a 300 kilometer radius, which is massive. Uh, rescue efforts there continue. But it also offers a lot of lessons, I think, for other parts of the world that are seismically active. I mean, every time there's a major earthquake, we try to learn from each other. Uh, John, in this one, I mean, clearly the construction issue has been a big one. That's being talked about a lot in Turkey already about, uh, you know, some of the, you know seismically. Unstable structures that were there. Uh, in terms of where we are here in Canada, I mean, what can we learn from this one? Is it is it as simple as just being ready?
4: Uh, that's one of the really important reminders. Is that there will be engineering lessons that will be learned from from this earthquake? So engineers will are there already, and and will be looking at at, at the details to see exactly what's happened. And it really is not all of the details, the the materials that were used and. Um, the, the construction techniques, the building codes, all of all of those will be will be looked at carefully. Um, one of the big lessons is really uh, large earthquakes are are rare, and when you live in a seismic zone, um, certainly being aware, knowing what to expect, uh, and being prepared is is really a huge element. So, one of the things. Um, you know, it's really a reminder for those of us uh, along the coast of British Columbia, especially, we live in a very active seismic zone and, and knowing what to expect, knowing what to do when that shaking begins, having a kit, having a plan, um, the types of buildings that we live in, uh, wood frame houses, are, you know, the construction is quite different here. Um, wood frame houses do very well and, and wood frame buildings do very well during, uh, during ground shaking. Um, but having um, having a plan and being prepared is so important.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the issues I know here is that this happened, the first one happened at four in the morning, right, when everyone was home and asleep. It's the worst possible time to have a huge natural disaster is right in the middle of the night like that. Uh, how far has technology come in being able to alert us to these things? I know that always comes up when there's a huge earthquake that technology one day may be able to warn us in advance, but where are we on that front?
4: yeah so so there, we have a number of tools in our tool belt and and the building codes are always the first to prevent uh, collapse of, of buildings and to save lives that so the building code is is um, is really critically important what um, what we're seeing now also in many parts of the world and being developed here in Canada is an earthquake early warning system and what that can provide is um, a warning before strong shaking arrives of uh, seconds to perhaps a minute or two. So it's not a lot of time, but with automated systems, what you can do is um, stop traffic from going into tunnels or onto bridges, stop high-speed trains, um, stop elevators so that people can get out before the strong shaking hits, um, and simple things like um, surgeons, and you know, bells going off in a hospital so that surgeons would put down their scalpels before the ground really starts to shake, because during these strong earthquakes, as we as we talked about earlier, um, it's really really strong shaking that can toss toss things around. So there's a lot you can do with this um, with earthquake early warning, and that is um, in place now in in Mexico and Taiwan and California, Washington State, and coming uh, to Canada next year.
0: That's right. About Fifty additional sensors go online in twenty twenty four. Is that right?
4: That's exactly right. So it is being deployed right now. Um, partnerships with communities, indigenous groups, um, industry. So there's there's a lot of a lot of work underway right now, and um, and that system will be operating next uh, March of twenty twenty four.
0: I know that in the event of a disaster, it mightn't seem the case, but it feels like at least of late, people have started to take this issue quite seriously, at least in British Columbia.
4: Uh, Yeah, I I agree. And, and, you know, even over the past, um, you know, if you look back when when I was in elementary school here in in British Columbia, there were no earthquake drills in the schools. Um, There was no shakeout drill. Um, And there really wasn't a lot of discussion about earthquakes uh, 20 or 30 years ago. So we really have come a long ways in terms of um, seismic retrofits that have been uh, undertaken: schools and bridges, old buildings. Um, there's there's still a lot to do, uh, but you know we have to recognize also what what we have done so far and where we're going. So there's been really huge progress, and of course our our national building codes are um, are improved every updated every five years and taking advantage of all of the new information that comes from um, instruments here in Canada, but also learning from earthquakes around the world, whether it's Japan or Chile or Mexico uh, or Turkey and Syria. So we are learning a lot more about earthquake hazards and and improving our codes and our standards um, on a very regular basis.
0: John Cassidy, as always, thank you so much. Most welcome. Thank you, Ben.